0: Our uh, our text today will be in First uh, Corinthians ten. You can make your way over there. First Corinthians ten verses one through twenty two is uh, is what we'll be looking at. Before we uh, before we get there, I do want to uh, I'll actually be reading through it as we as we go. So I won't read it before the uh, the sermon here today. But uh, but I do want to pray uh, for the sermon specifically. It is uh, it's, a, it's a great. Um, urge it's a it's a rebuke it's a uh, an invitation um to a way of holiness and so i want to uh, want to be praying for us that uh, that the spirit be be working on our hearts and our minds uh, throughout the sermon uh today so let's pray god we thank you for the words you give us and we remember that that we pray to you at the uh the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And we pray that the words that you give us here today would be words that stand forever in our hearts and in our minds. Pray that the Spirit would, uh, would enlighten us to understand what's being said, would help us to hear the, the nuances, the ways in which they are being said. Um, the subtleties, but then uh, not lose, uh, you know, all of the, uh, all the details uh, there and get lost in the details and lose the principles that you have for us. I pray that you would help us to understand how this passage brings us to a greater devotion, a greater delight, a greater dependence on Jesus Christ. We thank you so much for how sweet you are to us in giving us these words. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're in 1 Corinthians we've been in 1 Corinthians we will continue to be in 1 Corinthians for a while uh the Corinthian church is kind of that church that's gone sideways. Uh, they're a church that, as we as we kind of go through the the, the book, we find out we, we read this letter that Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, and we see uh, that this church is very knowledgeable. That they have uh, lots of lots of information, lots of education, uh, very much like I would say even the Iowa City area uh, that we have. Uh, they're very much like us in many ways. They're they're productive. They're they're um, they're rising, and they're in their. In their uh, Ability to uh, influence the culture and the, and the society around them. However, there's one small thing that's off is they've not activated their hearts toward love to each other. They have all of this potential, but there's something within their, their selfish pride that just isn't taking that to everyone else. They see things stacked up in different levels that are a different hierarchy of, of how we, uh, how we uh, relate to God. There are better people. There are worse people. And they're forgetting that we're all one in Christ Jesus. I think the word that, that we hear in 1 Corinthians is really good for our Corinthian hearts. We do this oftentimes and many times. I think today we're going to find uh, a way in which uh, whether or not we can relate to this topic that we've been in for a couple of weeks of, uh, of food sacrifice to idols. What are we doing with all of this? Uh, or sexual immorality. What are we doing with all of this uh, in the, first, in the uh, Corinthian church? I think that this idea and the principles that come from our passage today maybe bind it together the clearest that it ever is presented um, Maybe uh, maybe in sermons or maybe even in the book uh, itself. And it's this idea that we are to uh, take heed and flee from idolatry. And so that would be the urge for us uh, today is a simple, uh, simple two sentences there. Take heed, we'll explain what heed means because that's old language. Take heed and flee idolatry. And so those will be our points for a sermon today. Um, but there will be one more that I'd add uh, is, uh, is this idea of a participation uh, by association. So if you're if you're a note taker and you want to write the outline, there it's uh, the, point one is participation by association. Uh, point two is take heed, and point three is flee from idolatry. So you're going to want to have your Bible out. You're going to be wanting to look through this. We are literally going to just work through the text from top to bottom as we understand this. This first idea, I think, is an idea that um, that the that when we're reading all of the authors in the Bible. It's one of those amazing things about the, the biblical authors is that we, we hear a lot of theology. We hear a lot, of, um, a lot of ideas from the biblical authors. And so we are to first and foremost understand what they're saying and take that and, you know, and, and meditate on that and apply that to our lives. There's another thing that happens when we are really devotionally reading through the um, through the books of the Bible or basically any literature that we meditate on is that we don't simply get the words they're saying. We step back and try and understand what is their mind? What, what are they thinking? What made them think this way so they wrote this thing? When we do that with the biblical authors, Paul here is writing this letter, we're going to find his grasp, his understanding of, of idolatry, of God, uh, and the offense that idolatry has is much deeper than maybe even what he expresses here. I mean, you can't go much, much more aggressive than flee idolatry. But in his mind, he's understanding how this is so offensive, kind of like the chocolate cake I just referenced. Uh, this, is, this is amazing what he does. So participation by association. We're going to do that a little bit. The question that I want to ask that gets us into his mind is this question of, why does Paul interpret the Old Testament as he does here in 1 Corinthians 10? He uses the Old Testament in ways that seem to be a little aggressive and maybe somewhat offensive. It seems like maybe he's even interpreting it on his own, but it's here in the Bible. This is the interpretation that the Spirit gives us. Sometimes the New Testament authors will interpret Old Testament for us. We don't have to do all the work of saying, wait, did that mean this thing? Did this refer to that? Was this fulfillment? Sometimes the New Testament authors just say, no, there it is. That's exactly what that meant. And Paul's going to do that for us today. So we ask this question, what's he thinking? How is he understanding the Old Testament when he's reading it? And how does he understand it more specifically that the point of the passages that he refers to, how does he understand that they are speaking of Christ and the covenant community? I mean, this is incredible what he does here. So I'm going to read it here for you. He says, um, uh, of this covenant community, uh, this is verses 1 through, uh, one through 4. It says, for I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Wow, that's a, that's a blitz right through the, the, uh, the Old Testament there, especially the law. There's a covenantal community he's understanding. He reads the Old Testament, and he says there's something happening here. A covenant is this this relationship, this binding relationship that happens between God and his people, and it is directed by both law and love. And he brings that together in this thing called covenant. It's a binding thing that should not separate. But what's amazing about this community is that it's all people are involved in this. All of the Israelites here, all of God's people who He has called to be His holy people, who are to not bring anything else into it, they are uh, there to be a certain way. And how do we know that this is all-inclusive here? Let's just read through it. It's right there in the words. Verse 1, He says, all were under the cloud. All passed through the sea. Verse 2, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And at that point, he's saying something like this cloud, this sea, these people, they might be, probably are, precursors of baptism. We're seeing that there is something united together by what they were doing. Verse 3, all ate the same spiritual food. Verse 4, all drank the same spiritual drink. And then he says something very interesting, which we don't have time to go into, but I'm going to put it out there for you as he says, they drank from the same spiritual rock. And if you have an ESV Bible, they capitalize that, uh, the word rock, because they mean that's divine, that's God. The rock, the same spiritual rock that followed them, the rock was Christ. I mean, that's huge. (laughs) To read the Old Testament and be like, yep, Jesus, I'm going to write that down. Uh, That's amazing that he sees that. He helps us with that. But it's interesting that he says, you know, there's this, this rock that Moses hits that we think of and, you know, he hits the rock and the water comes out and then, and then there's water there. It's interesting, though, that there's this phrase here, the same spiritual rock that followed them. There's something else going on here in this, in this wilderness narrative. There's, there's a rock that's following them. It's almost as like Paul is reading the Old Testament and understands that Jesus Christ was all over that. He was the deliverer helping them out. He was the rock in the wilderness giving them their water. He was the one who was giving them their food. Jesus, or Paul sees a very big Jesus all over the Old Testament, and he helps us to see that Jesus just didn't, wasn't just invented because sinners got so bad and God said, I need to sacrifice something bigger than this. Jesus is not a backup plan. He was there the whole time, and Paul is showing us this. This is what's in his mind as he's writing these words. This is that covenant community. They participate in the things that the community is part of. And so then we get to this idea of participation by association. So what is this participation of association? Um, I think there are two ways we can go about it. We're going to read on here because the, the text, I could go on wherever I want, but the text is what I'm going to stay with. And it develops it that it says this participation by association is actually that we all carry the burden of sin together. Let's read this. He says, uh, he says uh, verse 7, do not be idolaters as some of them were. Now, verse 8, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. Verse 9, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did. Verse 10, we must not grumble as some of them did. What's really interesting here is that all of the people were part of this covenant promise, this covenant community, but some of them did a little bit of this on the side, and some of them did a little bit of this, and some of them did a little bit of this, and all of that equals to, now going back to verse 5, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. God let them have the fallout, Of the covenant curses, and they didn't follow His way because they were dabbling over here, or over here, or over here. When they didn't stay with the holiness of God as the way that He invited them to and commanded them to, nevertheless, all of them suffered. The principle here that we see all over Scripture is that everyone suffers when there's sin in the camp. If you want to look at more of this, a very pointed example is Joshua seven. Everyone suffers when there's sin in the camp. This is that participation by association. It's in that. It's in that guilt. If things are wrong here, I'll drop that in here. As we dabble in this or that, as individuals of North Campus, as Parkview, this actually isn't something that we just let go it actually affects all of us. There is a corporate witness. There is a corporate holiness. There is a corporate feeling and carrying of this. Your sin is not isolated on its own, even if we never know about it. There is something spiritual in this reality of the temple that God is building. This is back in 1 Corinthians language. We are all the blocks of this temple being built and will be tested by fire. We're all part of something. This is hard for us. I am I feel like we're kind of there, but this is hard for us in, in 21st century America because we're so individualistic. We think that I have a relationship with Jesus Christ and that's it. There is something bigger about the corporate faith than we ever could even imagine. And they get this here. And so it's hard for us because we're reading into a different kind of a context. But we need to bring that out some more because there is something there. All of us suffer when there's sin in the camp. That should rise us to that call of holiness. But I guess the question that I've already asked maybe still stands, why are these examples that Paul chooses to directly apply to the Corinthian church and also to our Corinthian hearts? He says in verse 6, Now these things took place as examples for us, for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. So why are these things so evil of what they did? So I want to run through the list here of this. I'll develop this a little bit more. This is probably the big development, and then we'll kind of move on with our actions of what we do. Verse 7, he says, do not be idolaters as some of them were, and then he goes on to explain what this is. He says, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Okay, I know you might have a Bible reading plan and you have to clip along. This, is, this text is like just great for studying for like an entire month. Um, well, what you need to do is take every off-road that, that it gives you. Right here, it's saying something weird. Don't be an idolater because people, they sat down to eat and drink and play. What? <laughs> that doesn't sound like idolatry to me. What does this mean? When we come across something like this, we should ask, what is he quoting? What he's doing here is he's doing that Old Testament thing that Bible readers would hear it and say, wait, I remember this, just as moviegoers would hear a movie quote and say, I know the movie that it comes from, right? This, this is the way he's, he's, he's citing this stuff. He's assuming we know a lot of this story. And so where does this come from? Do not be idolaters. And the people sat down to eat and drink and play. This is Exodus 32. In Exodus 32, I'll just read some of this, uh, and you, you can hear it. When the people saw that Moses had delayed to come down from the mountain, Mount Sinai, uh, Moses is up there for a long time, Ten Commandments are being uh, written. When he had delayed from coming down, the people gathered themselves together and they said, to, uh, they said to Aaron, get up, make us a god or gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses guy, uh, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. And then we read on that then Aaron collected all of their gold, all of their jewelry, melted it down, made a golden calf. Or I guess according to Aaron, he says, I threw everything in and oh, out came a calf. Then Aaron saw this, we read on, then Aaron saw this, he built an altar before the Lord. So we've got this calf, we've got God up on the mountain, and he builds an altar before the Lord. Aaron made a proclamation, proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. The Lord there, Yahweh, covenantal God. That's so offensive. We shall remind ourselves of the covenant we have with God with this golden calf right here. And then verse 6, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. There's our quotation. So What are you doing? What are you doing, people? This is called syncretism. I explained it to the kids just a moment ago as the chocolate cake. Syncretism is no good, especially when it comes to God, the one true God. Love the Lord your God. Our God is one. This is not okay for them. So this is an offense of it. Do not be idolaters in this way. Don't add things to your faith. Don't add things to the gospel. Verse 8, he goes on to say, We must not indulge in the sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell on a single day. What's going on here? Numbers 25 is where where we find the context of this. It reads, and behold, one of the people of Israel. Okay, wait, wait, I've I jumped ahead here. Um, numbers 25. Uh, what ends up happening is that we find that the, um, that the the Israelites, the holy people of God, are not to you know mesh themselves with anyone else. Actually, start to um, have sexual relationships with people outside of uh, of the Israelites. Uh, and so now we would say, oh, what a global citizen. But back then, no, 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 that's not how this works. Um, this is not how it works. The, the the people of God being holy and remaining in his ways is an evangelistic expression. They show that this God is true and holy by remaining pure in it. So it's not that the Israelites were all saying like, "Oh no, we're better than everybody else." Well, they were because they had God, but it's also an expression that this is a pure God and don't bring others into it. So they bring others into it. It says not only do they bring others into it, what ends up happening is they have conversations and all of a sudden this other faith comes. They start worshiping Baal Peor. And now Moses, uh, or, uh, and now Moses says, we, we need to have a renewal service. We need to make sure that we're all okay. And so this is what happens. During that service, and behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite. You don't need to know anything about Midianites other than it is not an Israelite. Brought a not-Israelite woman into his family in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the congregation while they're having this service. While we're having our worship services, we continue to have our side sins just like this guy. And then Phineas, one of the Levites, he said, this ain't good. And you know guys like that. This isn't good. I'm going to sniff this out. We're going to take care of this. He goes, he kills that perpetrator, and he kills the Midianite woman. And then we read, thus, instantly after that, the next verse says, thus, the plague on the people was stopped. Finish it there. Secret individual sins are as serious as public corporate sins. It's a lot easier in a cancel culture to call out a leader. It's a lot easier to call out uh, someone who has done an icky sin that we all hate. While we let all of our secret, subtle, socially acceptable sins go go unchecked. Phineas is not okay with this. He does right, but there's still a lot of loss of life. Secret individual sins are as serious as public corporate sins. Now, this is a rich man. Paul, Paul knows his Old Testament, and he's helping us a lot. Verse 9, he says, We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents. Here we go. Here's another one. Uh, testing of God. He says, did not put Christ to the test. Uh, putting God to the test is, uh, what, does that, what does that mean? Um, more or less, it means uh, not trusting God for His provision, so not, not trusting that he has given you a, a sufficient, uh, what he has given you is sufficient. That, that is what you need. Wanting more, but not just trusting. This is okay. It doesn't seem like a lot right now, but this is, this, is, this is good enough right now. This is what God has intended. So it's not trusting his provision or trusting in his promises. To then also think, uh, this could be it. Th- there's nothing after this. I don't know if God's actually able to or loving enough, to continue giving. And so we kind of hoard in that, that approach, putting, uh, testing God. Do not put Christ to the test. So in Numbers 25, he said, the people spoke against God and against Moses, it says, why have you brought us up out of, out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? Now, this is just the whining of the people again and again and again and again and again. We're going to hear this line over and over and over they do They, you know, he, he parts the sea, the Red Sea, and they're, and they're saved. They get on the other side, and it's like three days into the journey, and they're like, oh, we just rather would have died in Egypt than out here. And then they continue on, oh, we just would rather would have died back in Egypt. We had things back there. Yeah, we had tons of slavery, and it was absolutely awful, and we cried out to God to deliver us, but we kind of forget that because right now is unpleasant. So then the Lord sent fiery serpents among them, And they bit the people so that many of the people in Israel died. You have broken that trust. You have broken that covenant with me. You have thought that I am unkind, that I am unable to give you what you need. That I'm going to cut you off at some point. You have have entered this relationship that way. And I'll punish you and let you know that your unfaith shall be cursed. Psalm 78 is a fantastic psalm that you should sit in for a long time. It gives a huge summary and an interpretation of the Exodus event. Psalm 78, 18 uh, says, They tested God in their hearts by demanding the food that they craved. They demanded things because they didn't trust that God would give them what they needed. They didn't believe that God had already given them what they needed and so this kind of uh, the principle that we get from here is that doubt is, in fact, a sin. And the last one here, the example that he gives, and I am making a very robust understanding of this. We'll enter into this and assess where our hearts might be aligned. Uh, this is the last one. Uh, verse 10, it says, we must not grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. It says, oh, oh, that we might have, have died in Egypt, then go through all of this this is a similar thing to what was happening in, in, when they tested God, but, but this one is, is less of a, a doubt that God can do it or wants to do it, but more of just ungrateful hearts. Thanks, but no thanks, God. Like, this is it. <laughs> this is really lackluster. This is, this is pretty rough. I know we can do that with, our, uh, with anything that we're in. Uh, I think our, our culture is that way. Our hearts are definitely that way. Uh, we want marriage so much, and then we get into marriage, and we think, this is it. Uh, we want kids so much, and then you know, they start to have opinions of their own, and we think, this is it. Uh, we go to a church, and then we realize that church is made entirely of sinners, and we think, this is it. Um, we do this all the time. Oh, this is going to be the greatest president that we've ever had. This is it. And then we do that the next four years, and then the next four years. We just continue doing these things. Like it's, it's this, we, we've, we've built up a rhythm and a habit of ingratitude. Not say, okay, thank you, God, for what you've given us. Let's see what we can do with it. And so this is, to him, grumbling. This is whining in the desert, in the wilderness of this life, and we do it just like the Israelites. And so, now we get to our point two. That was a big Point, one, point two and three are much faster. Take heed. This is his instruction to us. Take heed. If these things happened, I'm going off of where we at, uh, verse 11. If these things, in fact, happened as examples to us, it means that we are tempted in the same way that some of them uh, were. Even more, if these things were written for our instructions, as verse 11 says, they were written for our instructions, then we do well to listen up, humble ourselves, and learn, especially if we are those on whom the end of the ages has come. So it's extra important for us to learn from the past as the future is increasingly encroaching on us now so we get to the point. Verse 12, therefore, therefore, Bible readers means we've had a bunch of stuff to say, and now we're really going to deliver what that all means. Therefore, everything I've just said, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. That's really old language, but what does it mean? Let anyone who thinks that he stands, this idea of standing, uh, as Paul uses this in 1 Corinthians, is standing uh, in faith, in confidence and in faith. First Corinthians 15, 1 Corinthians 15.1, he uses this. He says, uh, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, of which you received and in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. Stand in this gospel. In 1 uh, Corinthians 16.13, uh, he says it very clearly, Be watchful, which is take heed, be watchful and stand firm in the faith. So if anyone thinks that he stands in the faith, let him take heed. And this standing in faith means that they are confidently, you and I in our faith, confidently standing in the covenant security of the covenant relationship. We're just like the Israelites. God's people then, God's people now, we could stand in that faith. And this is where he says then, take heed. Because remember, Paul is preaching or or writing to a group of I don't know if we want to say mature Christians. They're knowledgeable Christians. I'm not sure knowledge always equals a one-to-one for maturity. They have a lot of knowledge. They know a lot of things. And sometimes that can hurt us more than help us in our spiritual walk. It says, take heed, which literally means look out. The word there is look out. Uh, NIV captures this really well. Um, So if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. I think that's a great way to put it. Be careful that you don't fall. It says there's a danger of being, uh, there's a danger of what John calls, uh, or John Calvin refers to as, as, as uh, nonchalance uh, within our faith. We get so used to uh, church. We get so used to Christianese. We get so used to the things that we talk about. We think that we're maturing in our faith. We have enough knowledge about things, and then we just get a little nonchalant uh, in the way we go about uh, life, not assessing whether or not we're We're slowly going into idolatry. Uh, Commentator Paul Gardner he says it this way. He says um, Paul is aware that the Corinthian posture, and that it that it presumes that knowledge has led them, uh, has led them to risk idolatrous associations and think nothing of it. They're walking in danger or they're swimming into dangerous waters, and they're not even thinking about it. That is, that is the caution of Christians. A lot of times we think, oh, we're pagan, they're heathen, they don't get it, they just have no idea, they're going to come to Christ, and then we're over here swimming in the, the safe pool. he um, says, no, 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 you always have to look alive, you always have to be testing things, because the devil is a lot sneakier than you think. And participation in one small thing is association to the other. He's going to go really intense on this one by the end of this passage. Uh, Paul Gardner, he, he likens it this way. Um, he uses a, a, an image that I, th- I just can't get out of my head. Is he says, it's like, it's like you go and you drink from a mountain stream. It's great water. We, we look at it, we say, this is good. I'm thirsty. This is great. As so we take up all of this water, not thinking about it, not taking heed to what might be in the water, and, it's, uh, and this water ends up being filled entirely with, uh, with giardia we got problems. We're laid up now. We've got, we've got a whole host of worries because we were nonchalant and not testing what looked to be okay to make sure that it wasn't rid of disease, that it wasn't rid of bacteria or parasites, that it wasn't unholy, that it wasn't syncretistic. We, te- we tend to do this with things. Uh, I'm going to boil this all the way down. Uh, we do this with, uh, with things like uh, we, we take our faith and we kind of swim in this, this, this water of, of success or, or wealth. Uh, Joel Osteen does this incredibly well. He, 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 I don't even know if he's like trying to swim in. He's just saying, if you believe in Jesus, you're going to be rich. And if you're not rich, you don't have enough faith. I mean, that's basically his line. Like, that's his thing. And people believe this. And Joel Osteen writes tons of books on this. And we think, oh, because it has Bible verses, because he's a Christian preacher, then we, we're safe. We can just drink from this water. Ah, that one's going to kill you. <laughs> that's, that's not good water. We think this sometimes with, uh, when, we, when we over-realize uh, maybe our politics, and we think that being a Christian is good, but a Christian who really knows the Bible votes this way, and a Christian who votes the other way probably doesn't know their Bible actually probably isn't a Christian. When we think those ways, we're actually thinking with syncretism, actually adding something to the gospel. Uh, If we think that if we we just learn more that we will be a better Christian, some of that's true, but if that's where you're you're going, it's it's the love that God has of you. The um, The disciples were very uneducated people. They did great things because of their faith. And so he says, don't Mesh this together. Take heed, lest he fall. And this falling has intense significance. It's this stumbling. It's this falling away because because association, uh, participation by association, it gets you into this and you bind together into something awful. You don't even know it. Paul assumes then in verse 13 that the Israelites in the wilderness were expected to see beyond their hunger and their thirst. I think that's the big part of it. I want to drink, so I'm going to drink now. If we're always living in the instant and not assessing it, we have a danger of not actually making it all the way. If I would drink deeply from that spring, from that mountain, and it's filled with all of those parasites, uh, I'm never going to make it to the top of the hill or the top of the mountain because, well, I'm (laughs) I'm going to be laid up or dead. But if I could see beyond my immediate need, if they could see beyond the water and the bread and see... The promised land is where we're going. And they could set their gaze there and stick it out a little longer and figure out how to live in the day. Verse 13, I'm going to give, uh, I'll read it, give a couple expl- explanations of what it's not, and then read it again. I'm going to do a lot on verse 13 at the moment because I think verse 13 has unfortunately been taken, misinterpreted, and applied in, in horrible ways in an expression of syncretism. We don't even know that syncretism is happening, that we're, we're meshing things together and many people have unknowingly put that understanding into this verse and ruined it for all of us. So verse, uh, verse 13, no, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the, but with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. I mean, that's a mouthful. That's a big, that's a big, uh, big thought there. What is not being said is that God will never give you more than you can handle. This, is, this, this thought of this verse here is often taken and put into the wording that is not in the Bible, nor is it biblical, that God will never give you more than you can handle. I mean, this is, this is, this is foolishness. This is an idea of self-fulfillment, you know, a therapeutic deism. I, I believe in a God, therefore I can be all okay and comfortable. That thought is not the gospel. We put that in, and sometimes we'll say this to people. It's not in the Bible. It's terrible. It's foolish. It's anti-gospel. Because let's think about the gospel. The gospel, if you believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you have come to at least the realization that the wrath of God is more than you can bear. And the fact that he has given you more than you can bear has made you humble yourself, repent, and receive forgiveness of sin. So he will give you more than you can bear. And when you acknowledge that, now you're off and running to the gospel. So it doesn't say that. It also does not say God will not tempt you beyond your ability in a way that that puts the responsibility on God not to push you too far. God knows how much you can handle, and he's not going to tempt you more than that. That's not how a loving father treats his children. A loving father calls them, urges them, invites them to virtue. Now, the 1 Corinthians 10, 13 is an urge to rise to holiness. Moments of temptation are testing points of character. In any story, the protagonist is the main character, and they follow the main character. The hero, though, could be the same or different. The hero of the story is the character that always makes the virtuous decision and ends up virtuous at the end. There's a difference there. You could just follow a story without taking heed and just walk through it and whatever, and the story will follow you. Great. Are you a, are you a hero of that? Well, we know there is one hero of the whole story. It's Jesus Christ. We follow his example there. So let's go back to this and see that God is actually in this saying all of these people could have overcome this. All of God's people then, all of God's people now could overcome this temptation. But they chose not to. So you then also, don't, don't follow that way, choose to overcome it. Let's read verse 13. No temptation has overtaken them or has overtaken you that is not common to man. So whatever you're experiencing now, you're being tempted right now, is not actually a unique thing. You are not a unique individual in all of history, and you have a whole bunch of different reasons and circumstances that are unique to you for why you go into this sin continually. You're not like anybody else. We all struggle with the same stuff. That's what it's saying. God is faithful, and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation. He will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Temptation is there, but He has given you the Spirit. He has given you His Word. He has given you His love. He has given you His forgiveness. Rise to virtue. And when we rise to virtue, then we take heed and we see beyond the immediate stream, the immediate need right now, and we see that what what do we do? Uh, we, We then respond. Our hearts are grateful. Our hearts are reverent and it moves to action. What do our feet do? Our feet do not sidestep sin. Our feet do not avoid sin. But he says in verse 14, they flee. Therefore, flee. Get out of there. That feeling, when you find out of the secret ingredient in the chocolate cake, that feeling is the flee feeling. Get it out of there. Get away from that. Paul more directly develops this idea of participation, that is, like, uh, that is uh, like the Israelites who participated in the covenant community, so also those who have faith in Christ participate in the practices of covenantal community now. He's going to make this point several rhetorical questions. We're just going to read right through them. Verse 16, he says, this cup of blessing that we bless, is it not participation in the blood of Christ, what you uh, what you worship, Start. You become like what you worship. You participate in the blood of Christ, and so you become more uh, more uh, as one with Christ. The bread that we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? So then the cup, the bread, we're starting to see the elements of the Lord's Supper here. It says, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we have take partake of the one bread. We will never get over our differences together. We will never have a true love with one another in our marriages, in our work relationships, in our churches. We will never be able to love each other enough to mend that. He's saying we are all one. We have unity when we all connect to the one God. That's how our unity is, uh, is between brothers and sisters. It's not this, this, this alignment and peace you know, imposed peace that happens together when we all just say the same things and agree. There's a unity that comes when we are together, and this unity, when we believe in Christ, is the unity of all, of uh, all of God's covenant community. Verse 18. Consider the people of Israel are not those who eat sacrifices, participants in the altar. He says, isn't, isn't this doing something to them? Verse 19, what do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons. Right here, we're saying, it's not that it doesn't matter. Like that there is no gray area. There is no, I'm gonna sit here on the fence and think about it. It's one or the other. Either you're gonna eat this cake or you're not gonna eat this cake. Either this thing's good or it's not good. Either it's holy or it's not holy. And he's saying even, so, even, even more so, it's not like, oh, it's not holy. It's, it's evil. It is of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy as they did before? Are we stronger than he as they thought before? And then he leaves us there, just kind of hanging so what do we do? I'm going to ask some questions here based off of what they have, just as a diagnostic, kind of a way to, to think through yourself, am I going one of these ways? I think our big, our big urge is take heed, flee from idolatry. It says, do not be idolaters. This is syncretism. Syncretism is, is adding, adding something other than God to the gospel, so that if I am a Christian, I'll be healthier, I'll be wealthier. I'll be of this leaning or that leaning. I'll be uh, in this group or that group. Uh, that's that's all something other than the gospel. The question you could ask is, what makes a person a better Christian? I've kind of gone through some of those, but if you ask that question, why are they a better Christian, and it's nothing other than, they, they aren't, they're, they're just a Christian. Then, that's a good red flag that you might be adding something to the gospel. You might be creating syncretism in your own mind, which is desiring evil as they did. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, he says. Side sins are just as bad as public sins. Everyone suffers when there's sin in the camp. And so let's together work on these corporate sins that we have as people. as a a community, as a church, as a nation. There are things that we do as a people that we need to confess. But don't focus on those and forget your own holiness because it matters to all of us. It says we must not put God to the test. Ask that question of yourself. Is this sufficient? Do I have that thought that if I just get this, then I think I can breathe. I think I'll be okay. I mean, you may have real things that you need to get out of. You may have real things that you need to change. You may have real things that you need to acquire. But if you think at that moment it will, it will put you at a place of shalom rest, then everything will be okay. That's a red flag that you might be worshiping another God. Then we must not grumble. This ungrateful, uh, ungrateful wondering if God has even given us good things. We do this a lot on social media. We grumble there the most. These are things that he puts before us to say He, he gave these to us as examples. So learn from them. What a great truth that God gives us. I I love how he can speak something so intensely, so deeply, so profoundly in such a sweet way. Take heed and flee from idolatry. We'll turn to prayer now. I want to pray for these things, but I also want to acknowledge thanksgiving. I want to to help us practice uh, grateful hearts, um, you could be praying there as well and uh, thanking God. It's always good. The more we say thank you, the, the easier it is to say thank you and the better our hearts are at acknowledging the gratitude that we're supposed to learn from these people in the desert. So I'll pray uh, a prayer for us, and then I'll invite us all to pray the Lord's Prayer together. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. We thank you for the love that you give us. We thank you that you are a good Father, that you, that you gently um, give us That which we need, even when it is stern and difficult for our our stubborn, prideful hearts to chew and swallow. Thank you for at least serving us the good stuff. Accept, O Lord, our thanks and praise for all that you have done for us. We thank you for the splendor of your whole creation, for the beauty of this world. We thank you for the wonder of life, for the mystery of love. We thank you for the blessing of family friends, for the loving care which surrounds us on every side. We thank you for setting us at tasks that demand our best efforts and for leading us to accomplishments which satisfy and delight us. We thank you for those disappointments and failures that lead us to acknowledge our dependence on you alone. And God, we thank you for the community that you put us in, that covenantal community. Above all, we thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, for the truth of his word, the example of his life, for his steadfast obedience by which he overcame temptation, for his dying through which he overcame death, for his rising to life again in which we are raised to life in your kingdom. Grant us the gift of your Spirit that we may know him and make him known, and through him at all times and in all places may give thanks to you in all things.